Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And while it has been a very interesting 48 hours here in Crested Butte, where it has been dumping snow, it is now going back to being warm and sunny. And by the time you hear this, the trails around here will already be melting out, leaving a lot of luscious and tacky goodness on our 750 miles of trail here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. So that definitely means that you should come get out here now and enjoy our amazing network of trails. Now, I'm also excited today to tell you about something that I am certain that every single one of you needs to check out just by virtue of the fact that you were listening to this particular podcast. That's what makes me so sure that you need to know about a service that a company called Spot is now providing. And again, I am certain that this is something that either you yourself need or something that one or two or 10 of your buddies probably needs. I'm serious about this now, so turn the radio down or tell your roommate to shut up for a second, but pay attention here. As you all know all too well, if you love bikes and love to ride, that means you also wreck. And while some of us wreck more frequently and some of us wreck less frequently, none of us are keeping it rubber side down all the time. So where Spot comes in is that Spot provides injury insurance that is actually affordable. And Spot will cover your medical bills up to $20,000 each time you get injured. Now, I am particularly passionate about this because I know for a fact that a lot of us in the mountain bike community are either uninsured or underinsured. And a lot of us also have like crazy high deductibles. So Spot has identified a real gap and is filling a real need that has been widespread and present for far too long in the outdoor space. Bottom line, it's just a matter of time until your next bike or ski or snowboard crash. And I want all of you to have coverage. And that said, while Spot works with and covers a lot of skiers and mountain bikers and snowboarders and skateboarders, Spot policies cover you 24-7 worldwide, whether you are chopping up food in your kitchen or climbing up Mount Everest. Even better, Spot has no deductible, and it is a monthly subscription that you are free to cancel anytime. And what might be even better than that Spot also works whether you have health insurance or not. Spot coverage starts at $25 a month, and there are a few states where that coverage starts at $35 to $40 bucks a month. But again, basically for $25 a month, you're going to get $20,000 of coverage when I know that a bunch of you are out there riding your bike like a kook. Well, we here at Blister don't want you to be even more screwed when you wreck because you don't have coverage. 
So here's the deal. I want you to promise me that you will go to blister.getspot.com and just take a quick look around. It's a really clean and clear page. I promise you're not gonna find a bunch of medical gibberish where your eyes will instantly glaze over. So I just want you to check it out, then ask yourself if it wouldn't be a really, really smart idea for you or your kook friends to get $20,000 worth of accident coverage. Just take a look at blister.getspot.com, sign up, tell your friends about this, and then we can all just get back outside and keep doing all the things we love with a lot more peace of mind. That's it, that's all I've got. Blister.getspot.com. Check it out. I just want you all to have coverage before you go case your next landing. All right, now if you somehow have made it this far into this podcast and you still have no idea what a Structure CycleWorks bike looks like, well, one, that's weird, and two, you should just do a quick Google search right now, Google Structure CycleWorks, so that you can see one of the most unconventional looking mountain bikes in the world. Full disclosure, I remember the first time I saw a Structure SCW1 and I just thought, nope, just no way, not riding that thing. And then I moved on and then I kept thinking about the bike and got kind of angry and was like, why the hell would somebody do that to a bike? And then I kind of kept being angry because I really can't stand bizarre designs that I think are just there for the sake of being different. And then I finally calmed down a little bit and thought, you know what, okay, I shouldn't be this close-minded when I really don't know anything about this bike or this design. So let's just go to the source and see if someone at Structure can convince me that this design is more than just totally bizarro looking. I am here to say that our conversation with the founder of Structure CycleWorks, Lonnie Hall, did in fact move me from being extremely dismissive of this design to being extremely intrigued and impressed. And honestly, I am really eager for all of you to listen to this conversation and see whether or not you're convinced as I was. I'm curious. Let us know in the comments section to the show notes of this episode or on our social channels or whatever, but I want to hear what you think. Anyway, a few days ago, Blister reviewer David Golay and I talked to Lonnie about his really interesting background, and then we moved on to why on earth he had the nerve or the gall to introduce this wild-looking front linkage suspension design, and then Lonnie kind of flipped the script on us, and he actually got us wondering why it is that rear linkage suspension designs are everywhere and widely accepted, and yet front linkage designs are totally uncommon. That's a great part of this conversation. So once again, at least during that part, tell your roommate to shut up or turn the radio down, but listen to Lonnie's take on that. Okay, from there, we then talk about the pros and cons of bringing such an unorthodox bike to market. And then finally, we end by asking Lonnie if he happens to have any other big ideas, which it turns out, I think Lonnie is just always really full of big ideas. So he has some interesting things to say at the end of this conversation as well. 
Long and short, this is a really fascinating discussion and a really interesting topic. So I want you to now put on your finest thinking cap, settle in, and let's dive into the weeds with David Golay and Lonnie Hull. Here we go. Well, Lonnie, how are you today and where are you today? I'm fantastic. I'm enjoying the fall weather in Calgary, Alberta, where Structure is headquartered. We got a lot of ground to cover today. I would say that Structure is probably not the most conventional bike company out there. And so I think kind of my first question here is I want to do the run up to how you sort of got to the creation of Structure. So take it back and talk a bit about your background. Where'd you grow up and, and how did you kind of ramp up to Structure? I actually was born in Montreal, of all places, and four years into life, my parents moved to Colorado, where my mother was from, and I grew up in the front range of the Colorado Rockies. So the mountains have always been my backyard. I love the outdoors. I never came in until the dinner bell rang when I was a kid, and I always appreciated motorsports and things with two wheels. So for me, that was dirt bikes and bicycles from a young age. I was out tearing it up and getting gravel in my hands under the skin with uh, some bad crashes out in the boonies when I was pretty young. So learning how to do things better, how to keep things running well, became pretty important to me from a young age. And I loved innovation in the spaces of automotive and motorcycle design from the time I, I could walk and write. So when I took that to adulthood, I kind of got into the automotive performance realm and was doing some work for local dealers, supporting them with upgrades and Aesthetic pieces, window tinting, sunroofs, graphics kits, um, underbody spoiler kits, that sort of thing. I was really fascinated with the whole industry, with the idea of taking something that is essentially whole and good and making it even better. So that took me into racing, race support, vehicle design, customs, hot rods, uh, restorations, the whole works. In Portland, Oregon, where I eventually settled as an adult, I got married, ran my own company, had a car lot, started doing race engine builds and had a lot of fun with that. But in the midst of that, I was invited to join a, an electrical engineer in Portland, Oregon on a project he was doing on conversion of a Honda VFR motorcycle to a full electric. This was something that was just not done. When was this? 2007. And Travis Gintz, who uh, I'll call out by name, hello, Travis, he had this great idea to strip all the internal combustion kit out of this motorcycle frame and put in battery containment and uh, battery management, charging, and a controller that would run a typical kind of a golf cart permanent magnet brushed motor with chain drive to the rear wheel and get that all under the fairings and make it look good. We managed to do that, and Travis did a blog on the whole project. That caught the attention of a guy who became a really good friend of ours, Adrian Hawkins, who used to work for Cosworth Racing, uh, Ford Motorsports Division in UK. And Adrian happened to be under contract in Portland, Oregon at the time with a company called Motuses. They had been working on a MotoGP bike and had kind of faced bankruptcy and 
going defunct as a company because MotoGP changed the rules from 990 cc's to 800 cc's, and they had developed around 990, and that just left them dead in the water. Small company, big vision, but without the wherewithal to adapt. So we jumped in with this idea of an electric racing motorcycle uh, over a beer with Adrian. And Michael Sizz, who ran the company, put forward their carbon fiber and T6 alloy, beautiful MotoGP racing chassis as the donor chassis for an electric racing motorcycle. But about a month into the project, we found out that the world's first zero emissions Grand Prix was taking place at the Isle of Man. And total happenstance, I don't, I don't know, convergent evolution, whatever you want to call it. It was amazing timing for us because we had a fire lit under us. And within five months, we actually put together an electric racing motorcycle for the world's first zero emissions Grand Prix, got it in the crate, got it shipped, got it through customs, got our tools through customs, made it through all of the track requirements and qualification and sometimes by the skin of our teeth. I can't tell you how many 36-hour work days we had where we saw the sun come up twice just to make it all possible. Race day, we got four miles into the 37.7-mile course, and our motors just completely shrapneled. Unfortunately, there was a problem with an adhesive on the backing plates of motors that we purchased from a third party, and they under the heat and the high current conditions we were running at, they just came apart and it left us in tears. But we came back the next year with permanent magnet free motors. They were brushless DC and they didn't have that issue of, of magnets being adhered to a plate. And we did much, much better. In fact, we won four years in a row, first place podiums at the Isle of Man. So big turnaround. And I'm really proud of that accomplishment, but I wouldn't want to make too much of it because you've got to keep moving forward. With with innovation, you, you don't rest on your laurels. So for me, that meant doing something in the space of two wheels, but not necessarily with a motor this time. I moved to Calgary, Alberta. Uh, my other passion was mountain biking. And I had seen and thought about and participated in chassis development in so many different areas that I wanted to take all of the best ideas and put them into one new thing. So in 2010, I started kind of noodling on the idea of a linkage front end on a mountain bike. But it wasn't until 2012 that I actually started drawing in earnest. Those drawings led to parts made in full size out of MDF and later out of a, a foam that could be glued together and carved in such a way that you could wrap it in carbon fiber afterward and prototype and have a working finished product. So with those life-size maquettes, if you will, I could track axle path. I could look at kinematics. I could get a sense of making front and rear work harmoniously together with similar motion ratios, similar energy into the shock, shock front and rear in our case, and get the kind of outputs for the rider that I thought would be ideal. But again, it was all theory until we had a working prototype. So in 2015, the company I was working with in Toronto, KQS, uh, that's Kevin Kwan Studios. They do bikes for a lot of the industry today. We put together an aluminum prototype and had that built with Frank the Welder out in Vermont, who did some early work for Yeti and a bunch of other uh, luminary bicycle brands. And Frank put together a beautiful bike for us. 
it turned out to be really rideable in, in spite of the fact that we kind of deliberately underbuilt certain elements of the bike, particularly the neck up at the steering controls. That down tube, top tube kind of junction was very thin and a very small diameter aluminum tube. But what it proved was that with rider weight going into the controls and not suspension energy coming up through the wheel and fork into that area, we could get away with a pretty waspish, thin front steer tube and, and top tube. It was telling because it really worked. You said that you kind of intentionally underdeveloped. Why the intentional part? I wanted to see just how thin we could make that area and still support rider weight, knowing that we were directing suspension energy into the down tube and into the center of the bike. So it was a bit of an experiment to see if we'd get some, some torsional effects, some twisting on the bars that would induce a problem. And what we found was that we, we were a little flexy with the aluminum bike and it gave us an idea where we'd want to beef up the production carbon bike while at the same time proving to be a very rideable bike. And it taught us a lot about anti-dive and about the characteristics of, of wheel path that we were looking for. So it kind of, it hit a lot of targets for us. And one of them was just to see how thin you could go and get away with it. Yeah. I mean, that first prototype aluminum bike was a structure product. We had been incorporated for about a year when we got it built and that bike was all about learning. So we had eccentrics at each of the main pivot points and both front and rear shock mount locations for the front shock. So we could change the kinematics quite a bit and the anti-dive properties of the front of that singular bike and learn something. We could learn about whether we liked a bike that had true anti-dive numbers in the range of about 10% anti-dive. When I speak of anti-dive, I tend to think in terms of relative to a telescoping fork. So a telescoping fork will tend to be about 35% pro-dive. And we work back from that. So we reduce the pro dive tendency in one of our settings to about a 17% reduction from telescoping. Uh, we end up at about a 13 to 15% uh, pro dive configuration, or we can hit a couple of marks in the middle, 22% reduction in dive, 33% re reduction in dive, or 41% reduction versus telescoping forks. So we get into some numbers where now when you hit the front brake, you're actually, the, the kinematic tendency is for the front linkage assembly to open up, to actually resist compression. So if you hit a bump, a square edged rock root or curb, you'll actually have to overcome that tendency of the suspension to want to open up, not compress under application of the front brake. We learned all of that both through modeling in CAD, but also by building the real bike and moving those eccentrics around for each point. I have a test for you, Lonnie. Let's see how you Go do. Let's say somebody jumps in, they're listening to this conversation, they've never seen a structure bike, and they have no idea what you're talking about right now. The test is, how do you describe to somebody who's never seen one of your bikes the look? Okay. Imagine that you want to control a front fork that holds a front wheel, and you want to hold the steer tube for that fork with 
one hand below the other. So you extend both of your arms, you've got one hand below the other, and you've got a steer tube with a fork beneath it running through both of your fists. And now you want the pivot for that suspension system to be your shoulders. And you're gonna just move your, your hands up and down with your shoulders as the pivots. That's essentially the two arms that come off the front of our bike holding the fork, just like you would be with your, your hands here. All right, pretty good. I still think people should probably go look at this thing if they, if they haven't seen the design, because it is different. And let's keep this narrative going then. So you've got, you're working on prototypes with Frank the Welder, and when do we actually get around to like the, hey, I think we start a company now? I may have put the cart before the horse because in 2014, I really believed we were onto something kinematically and from a design standpoint that was new. So in order to apply for a patent, I went ahead and incorporated before we had the first prototype. With the prototype in hand, we proved in the real world that the concept functioned and functioned well. It's still a rideable bike. In fact, my 14-year-old son is riding it right now. That longevity, that durability was something we honestly didn't even expect. We thought we might just break that bike and be done with it. But it's a rideable museum piece at this point. And taking what we learned from that bike, we knew we had something that was doing more than a telescoping fork possibly can to stabilize the front of the bike, to track better over small and medium-sized bumps, to reduce brake dive within a range that we found acceptable between too soft and too harsh. Uh, obviously, if you have 100% anti-dive and every time you grab the front brake, it really stiffens the front suspension, then if you hit a bump, the suspension is not going to be compliant. So there's a range that we were looking for and we found it. So we threw all of that into the stew pot and developed the carbon fiber design. And in 2017, we were pretty close to where we thought we could tell the factory in Taiwan, let's pull the trigger, let's build this. Uh, we did consult with uh, a couple of other in industry engineers who said, hold on, let's, let's rethink a couple of aspects of this. For example, we had an elevated chainstay originally designed for the carbon bike. And what we found is that when both the chain stay and the seat stay are curved in the same manner, almost in parallel, they'll tend to twist in harmony. And that can induce a torsional effect at the axle, uh, an ability to twist on, say, an off-camber hillside that we didn't like. So that, for us, meant performance first, aesthetic second, always form has to follow function. And we went to the midline chainstay that you see on the production bike today. That involves some additional design time. And while we were at it, we obsessed over things like cable routing. You wouldn't believe how much time and energy it takes just to get cable routing right on a, a carbon fiber bike, particularly if you're going to go internal. So we obsess over every detail. Just one little thing that we found in going to carbon was that eventually we wanted markets where they're traditionally more open to exotic thinking like Germany and UK, where linkage bikes have tr traditionally been well accepted, we knew that they were going to get these bikes very muddy and they were going to get those bearings wet. So we went to the extra step of putting a groove on each of the bearing caps for the main linkage bearings using industry standard 30 mil bicycle bearings, but with a cap that has a double X-ring seal 
on the cap. So now these these bearings are not only sealed in and of themselves, but they've got two extra lips keeping mud and water out. And that's just done wonders for bearing longevity. I think one thing that might be worth going over in a little bit more detail as sort of some background for people who might have just listened to that and felt in over their heads a little bit would be to just talk at a little bit more of a high level about what anti-dive actually is. And you sort of touch on this a bit, but sort of the trade-off between increasing anti-dive and the resulting um, reductions in bump absorption that you get while braking with a front end that has a whole bunch of anti-dive. For sure. And maybe I should just take a, a step back and give kind of the big picture view of why I did all this in the first place. And that is that in 2010, I was riding a mountain bike with a telescoping fork. It was a downhill bike. I was at a Rocky Mountain Resort and came off a big tabletop and on the landing, didn't know that I had a problem with my rear chainstay, but probably already had a crack in it. I cracked it completely through on the non-drive side, set up a big wobble, went over the bars, landed on my head, and uh, took out my helmet and my collarbone and uh, knocked myself silly for about six hours, was in the local hospital, um, not really conscious. So that incident led me to feel that we really need to serve riders better with a front end that has less tendency to throw you over the bars. And that's where the anti-dive comes in. So with a telescoping fork having a tendency when you grab the front brakes to put you over the bars, to shorten and steepen as soon as you apply the brakes, and also to become less compliant, I thought, we've come so far with rear linkage, why don't we apply some of the same principles at the front and make the front comply in a similar fashion to the rear? Let's make the front and rear really work together as a harmonized system. That's where structure comes from, is serving riders with a, a product that is more supportive when you're pushing the bike the hardest. And whereas a telescoping fork will tend to become less stable, the harder it's compressed, the harder it's pushed, the harder it's worked, the more it's loaded with the structure bike, because it's pivoting on nearly frictionless bearings, it's always going to be compliant. We can separate the braking from the steering and from the suspension as forces entering the system. And we're able to get the suspension to remain compliant by rotating on those pivoting bearings while the braking is pretty well independent of what the suspension is doing. Now, when you go down a chute into braking bumps and you grab a handful of front brake, not only is the bike not diving as readily, but as it's slowing, the suspension's still free to move and it will remain compliant, roll through those big bumps. Even encountering a big square-edge tit at the bottom of those braking bumps, the suspension is not going to be packed in. The way a telescoping fork can kind of stagger to the stops and then have no compliance left when it hits that last big hit, and quite often that's what will put you over the bars. So just to come back to that 10,000-foot view, we wanted to address all of those things on behalf of the rider. So... I'm curious, for somebody who is swinging a leg over one of your bikes, how intuitive does the ride feel on that first ride? 
how much of a learning curve is there when hopping on this different design? I'll answer that a couple of different ways. The first thing people think in just a parking lot ride is, wow, this feels completely normal. It just feels like a bike. Because at low amplitude, we've got a 66 degree head angle. So it's actually rather steep and sharp handling at static and sag. But as you go deeper into the travel, what you'll find is that now the bike just demands more and more and more. It says, go harder, go faster. I can take it. And the reason for that is that initial 66 degree head angle under pitch, it will remain at 66 degrees all the way through the travel within one degree. And the trail number or the tendency of the front fork to stay steering straight that trail number will also remain constant at about 109 millimeters all the way through the travel in pitch. So that's compression of just the front suspension. Whereas if the rider is bouncing both front and rear together, the front is actually going to slacken at the fork from 66 degrees all the way to 58.3. So we end up with the slackest bike in the industry at full compression of front and rear. That is contributing to a much larger trail number. So you're getting slower, more stable steering, but at a, a point in the travel where you've buried the suspension through its travel and you need that stability, you're not putting in big steering inputs at the bars under those kind of high amplitude situations. So the bike is nimble when you need it. In the parking lot, it's going to feel completely normal, but the harder you go, the more you're going to feel like the bike reinforces your confidence. As far as the learning curve there, I think the best way to answer that is that we had two riders approach us when we first introduced the bike. These were carbon samples that were literally a week old. They were fully built functional bikes. We took them to Sea Otter and we had two racers come to us, approach us separately and say, can I race your bike? which was shocking to us. What a vote of confidence that they would take a look at these strange machines, bounce around on the asphalt, say, hey, this feels pretty normal, but I like it. Let me trade in my well-prepared race bike and go race this thing. That's what they did. And we said, okay, sign here. <laughs> sign the, the waiver and go risk your life. Well, they, they came back with podiums, three podiums out of three events, two separate riders, and they had about an hour of practice and setup time each. And we really, if, if I tell the truth now, looking back, we didn't have the suspension ideally set up back then. And we've learned a lot since about shock settings and volume spacers and high speed compression tune. So we've, we've come a long way from those early days, but they went out and they won three podiums against a field of very experienced, talented, professional riders who were riding traditional bicycles. So the learning curve is actually not steep at all. You can jump on and feel quite confident riding the bike. Just following up on that, the racers who came up, they literally just saw the bike and were like, we want to race on that. Or they saw it, thought that's weird, hopped on it, rode it a little bit, and then came back. Like, I'm just curious if those folks, just by looking at that design, sort of put two and two together and thought, oh, I've never seen that, but I bet this is what this design will do. I'd hate to speak for each of them, but Ryan Sullivan was a young guy, early 20s, and he bounced around on the bike very skeptically at first. And, and again, this is just on a flat asphalt surface at Sea Otter. And like the way it felt, felt confident uh, wheeling and stopping on the bike and uh, decided 
that he wanted to take it up for a couple of practice runs. And having done that, he did decide to race it. Whereas Dave Smith, who was in his mid sixties at the time, jumped on the bike and said, I love the way this thing feels. I definitely want to race it in the dual slalom and in the downhill race. So he went up and won gold in the dual slalom and shaved seven seconds off of his previous best time on one of his first practice runs. So we, we couldn't believe it. David, you're the engineer here between us. What do you find most compelling or questionable about Lonnie's take about what this front system does? I think that the head angle changes as the fork cycles are the most interesting and compelling thing about it. And this is something that I've written about on Blister a fair bit in some other circumstances. I've kind of got a bit of a thing for aggressive hardtails. I think they're a ton of fun. On a hardtail, even if it's something that you're intending to ride quite aggressively on steep, gnarly terrain, it makes sense to have a fairly moderate amount of fork travel because the front end is only getting lower and you're only ever pitching forward as the suspension cycles when you don't have a any rear suspension to balance that out at all. And even though you do get a bit more compliance out of a longer travel fork, of course, the geometry swings that result from that are detrimental enough to think that it's just not worth it for me. And so the idea of having a bike where you have the head tube angle actually getting slacker as it's compressing, if you're, like Lonnie said, if you have both the front and rear cycling in parallel, it's pretty cool because, like he was saying, it 100% makes sense that you would have more, a relatively steep head angle and more shorter wheelbase and all of this when you are not compressing the suspension, going relatively slowly, like if you're climbing or on a more meandering trail. And you can therefore have a quicker handling, more nimble bike that then doesn't get very sketchy once you open it up and are going harder and compressing the suspension more. That 100% makes sense and seems quite compelling to me. I'd love to speak to that. I'm happy to be having this conversation for the first time publicly because it's something we've just started giving some serious thought here internally. We have had a lot of talk just of late about doing a hardtail. And as I give thought to how that will function, you can kind of view the rear axle as a constant now. And it's nice to work from that constant. You know what the rear axle is going to do on a hardtail. You, you know it's not going to travel. It's just kind of a fixed point now and you can establish your kinematics around how the front will travel and interact with the rear what it's going to do to the bottom bracket what it's going to do to the head angle those are things that you can all work from pretty obviously and with a telescoping fork you know it's going to dive you know it's going to become steeper you know it's going to lose trail and it's going to become sketchier so I agree with you. You'd want moderate travel and you might even set up the front to be fairly stiff just so that you feel like it's reliable. It, it may not be plush, but at least it's not going to just dive through its travel and throw the kinematics into the weeds. I like the idea of doing a linkage front with a hardtail just to show off that we can do moderate to large travel at the front 
and not shorten the wheelbase tremendously, not steepen the head angle tremendously, and also under braking, not lose a whole bunch of the front travel and compliance and therefore safety. I think the one thing about that though, and I will say this publicly, is that if we put a linkage front on a hardtail, it's very quickly going to make even the most diehard hardtail fans say, wow, this this front just makes me want rear suspension now. Yeah, I mean, certainly when I'm talking about myself being a hardtail fan, I am by no means exclusively into riding hardtails. I, I look at them sort of more as a fun alternative to make trails that either you've ridden a million times and know like the back of your hand or just aren't quite as technical and gnarly a bit more exciting i wouldn't want to own one as my only bike but they're a a super fun second bike sort of to elaborate on the point i made earlier like my personal hardtail right now is a btr ranger which i have set up with a 120 millimeter fork and uh, it's got a 62 degree head angle so it's a very very slack aggressive bike but then short travel and like I said, it's only ever getting steeper than that. Like that, that static number is the the minimum head angle it's ever going to have, and it's a bit quirky, but it's a lot of fun. Lonnie, my apologies. I forgot to tell you that David is super weird. So uh, yeah, now now you know. I love it, man. We're cut from the same cloth. I completely agree with your take on where a hardtail fits in your multiple bike disorder kind of garage. We call it M- MBD, multiple bike disorder. You've got to have 10 bikes in the garage and two more planned, and and then you've got to clear it with your wife. That's the way life should be. You have maybe already answered this, but I will ask you this question anyway and see if it leads to a slightly different take on what you've already said. But just thinking about sort of designs and innovations in general, I often try to think about new designs that we're looking at regardless of the product category and try to identify what type of user is that new design going to sort of affect the most. We can think of certain designs, certain design elements as being something where it's like, okay, everybody can kind of appreciate it maybe, but lower level users in particular are going to see real advantages, real benefits out of this new design. Or we might say, again, well, we think every user might gain some benefit where the real recognition and benefits are going to be realized is with the high-end rider. How would you think about your design? This may sound like marketing hyperbole. But what we've learned from real-world experience with a huge range of riders from kids to young aspiring racers to seasoned pros to weekend warriors who have a lot of, of cash to spend but really just want the, the best, most cutting-edge thing, even if their skill level is somewhere between just starting out to really capable you know, could, could be riding pro, but happens to have too busy a, a work life. With all of these guys in mind, and with all of them having ridden the bike, we find that 
the people who use it best are definitely pros and racers. They're jumping on the bike and saying, I'm, I'm approaching jumps faster with more confidence. The bike feels more planted. I can't believe how good it is in tech and it still jumps well and it has great balance. Um, love the brakes and they'll, they'll comment on the minutia. So we're, we're seeing big benefits there, but for the guy who's a weekend warrior, whether or not he's getting the full understanding and use of the bike, he's jumping on it and he's saying, you know what? I have more grins per kilometer. We're Canadian. So we're going to say kilometer, whether it's more grins per kilometer, or I just feel more refreshed at the end of the ride. I don't have as much arm pump. I don't have as much fatigue and pain in my back and shoulders. And I just laughed more all the way down the mountain. I say there's something for everyone with our bike. And I think what we've got to get over is the initial intimidation that some people feel when they look at the bike, they look at it and think, Oh, it's just too confusing. Or it looks like it's going to kill me. Or the comments that we've heard many times from internet uh, pundits is not only would I break that thing in a second, but it's, it's hideous, burn it with fire. It looks like a Trek session made love to an alien from the movie aliens. We've, we've heard it all. So we've got to get people used to the idea that a bicycle doesn't just have to be two triangles. And we've also got to get them used to the idea that, Hey, if we've accepted linkage in the rear, putting it on the front isn't such a strange concept and it's not really doing anything so differently at the front that you can't wrap your head around it. Give it a little thought and watch a few videos and accept that this is not necessarily the new normal, but at least a new normal and something that fits within the overall paradigm of cool, fun, acceptable bikes, even if it looks a little strange. We've done quite a bit of talking about the general characteristics of the bike and especially the linkage front end, but it might be a good time to circle back and go into a little bit more detail about some of the particulars of the current model that you have on offer. So Lonnie, if you could just talk everybody through that, I think that'd be great. From the beginning, I wanted the bike to be as normal as possible while highlighting something that's very different and challenging up front. So for the rear, it's horsed, it's four bar linkage, it's something that people are used to, they understand. We're using all the same hardware, all the same bearings, typical part numbers that you'll find in any bike shop throughout all the pivots up front on the bike. And in fact, we use the same pivot hardware front and rear on our bike. So anybody who can work on a rear suspension can work on our entire bike. Anybody who can service a rear shock can service the most complicated part of the bike, which are the two DVO air shocks that are actually so similar that you can swap them front and rear. The only difference is that the front gets less air pressure because the human body puts less energy into the front of a bike than we do driving our legs into the bottom bracket. So we use a, a bit less air. At first, we thought we'd use a different number of volume spacers, but we've actually come around to being pretty happy with three volume spacers in the positive side of the DVO shocks that we use. So even there, we've got tremendous similarity in the, the tune of the front and rear. When I say that we wanted things to be as normal as possible, what I mean is we're using a threaded BSA 30 bottom bracket. We're using boost spacing front and rear. You can hang anything that you'd hang on a typical modern enduro bike on our frame, and it works perfectly. It fits just fine. So there's a lot of normal going on to accompany that very unique front end. Yeah, that's that's cool. And just to 
fill people in if they haven't looked this up already too. The bike had it's a 27.5 wheel bike and 153 millimeters of front and 154 millimeters of rear travel if i have that right that's right yeah so that and those numbers are kind of normal for the enduro category we feel but what i would point out is that that's 153 millimeters of vertical travel at the front mm -hmm. so where a telescoping fork is measured up and back along the the line of the fork angle we're actually getting about as much vertical travel as a telescoping fork with 170 mils of nominal travel. So our front end right off the bat will feel like about a, a 170, but we say 170, 180. The reason for that is that we're diving less under braking. So there's more suspension available. That all makes sense. I guess just for a few more rounded out details, it's currently available in three sizes. And you've got a range of builds available. People can check out on the website as well. That's right. One thing that I will point out is that we've had such a large number of people asking for the all carbon uh, or matte carbon finish that uh, we're probably going to introduce on the website an all black option for the bike to accompany the blue and gold and matte black options that we currently have. We also have uh, several different specs. We're using the Eagle GX and XX1 kits for two of our specs, as well as an XT Shimano version. And uh, all of them are fantastic and have proven to be very durable for us. Lonnie, was there something about the linkage fork design that made it clear to you to first offer this bike with 27.5 wheels as opposed to 29? Or are you just a 27.5 guy? I agonized over this. When I started the design cycle back in 2012, 27.5 was it. It was the hot wheel size. 29ers were considered to be too flexy. And my, how the world changed we several years later realized that 29ers were surging ahead that uh, they were becoming the the popular wheel size and 27.5 was still popular but maybe not as much so and at that point we were so far down the road that 27.5 it is but that being said we recently did a comparo racing our bike against three of the best 29er enduros currently on the market all carbon fiber bikes, all high-end, high-spec, and very well-equipped to race. And we ended up coming in second over a 2.5-kilometer course, I believe it was. Yes. And we were within one second of the, the bike that came in first. That bike had 29-inch wheels, and we're, we're not embarrassed by that result. We were hoping for first, but rear compliance actually ended up being the one thing that held us back, and also the smaller wheel size. So we've got our eyes set on where we can improve in the future, but at the moment, we're competing with 29ers with the smaller wheel size, and we're pretty proud of that. I think we should talk about durability. You touched on this a little bit earlier, some of the internet comments, right? where people are certain that they would destroy that bike in an instant. Talk a little bit about, say, the pros and cons. So I think about two things. I think first about strength, and then I think about durability. I think about stiffness as opposed to durability too. So we've got a system where the moment arms or the length of the arm that is trying to move in relation to the other arms in relation to the chassis is shorter than a telescoping fork 
on a typical bike, the steering head is holding a rather large arm that's trying to rip itself off of the chassis. And in the case of our linkage arms, each one of them taken individually is shorter and so exerts less force on the next part to which it is attached. The result is a system that's 25% stiffer than a telescoping fork. But stiffness isn't everything because something can be stiff but brittle. So in our case, we're stiff, but we're also quite strong. The system as a whole takes a hell of a lot of abuse. And the reason for that is from the beginning, I wanted to overbuild the bike and make sure that it was uh, able to stand the test of time and also able to stand the kind of abuse that our riders would put it to. So right off the bat, we, we had these early production samples and I had Tyler Klassen, who was a former Red Bull Rampage champion, get on the bike and take it and, and just haul off the back side of Mount Vetter in British Columbia. And chasing this guy down a mountain is ridiculous. The amount of sheer talent natural inborn talent that that man has cannot be overstated. And he basically just dropped it off a cliff and, and descended for, I don't know, 1500 feet or something. Chasing him was, was ridiculous. If he hadn't stopped and waited for me 20 times, I never would have caught him. He actually dropping to flat several times was able to induce a crack at the upper headset cup on the fork steering head. And because of that, we, we called it a day, but I went to the factory and I said, I want the carbon behind that bearing cup to be four times thicker than it currently is. We're going to Tyler proof this bike is what I told them. And that's the kind of thinking we're always going to apply as a company. If something has a problem, we're not just going to wait for a bunch of warranty returns to, to come in. We're going to address it on the design side, on the layup side with the factory and in the quality control side by just making sure that every bike that, that comes off the line is something we can stand behind. The result uh, of all of that is that we end up with a bike that is not just stiff, is not just strong, but is durable and easy to work on. And I know that last part sounds unbelievable. We've had people look at the bike and say, God, I'm going to have 500 to to $1,000 of, of fork service every year or front suspension service to manage all those pivots. But the truth is we've protected those pivots. We've put aluminum inserts from bearing seat to bearing seat across the inside of the frame so that everything stays stiff, stays in line, and doesn't get water penetration. And these bearings live like you wouldn't believe. We've got bikes now that have thousands and thousands of hours and have never had a bearing changed on them. In two years, I have not replaced a main pivot bearing in our entire fleet, including customer bikes. And it, it almost sounds like a lie even to me, but that is, the tr that is the truth of it. That being said, the shock service interval is the limiting factor and the bikes are holding up absolutely brilliantly. We've got a pile of components that have broken wheels, tires, braking systems, derailers, shifters that have gone by the wayside and over the, the past two years, we have had zero frame failures in our demo fleet. And when we had one problem with one of the linkages, we actually did a, a redesign to address that immediately. And that's, that's, how we, that's how we roll here at Structure. Related question, what kind of warranty do you have on the bike? No holds barred, lifetime on the frame and the bearings, and not just for the first owner. We'll uh, we'll back the frame and the bearings for subsequent owners as well. Honestly, I think getting rid of a telescoping fork and having to do 
lower leg oil changes on those is significant benefit as well. The intervals on that tend to be significantly shorter than rear shocks. Along those lines, I guess one thing I'd be curious to hear your take on, Lonnie, is you talked about this a little bit about how potentially having pivots rather than a sliding interface on the structural parts of the front suspension can help smooth out the suspension and mitigate some of the binding and whatnot that you get out of a telescoping fork. But I'd be curious to hear how much of a difference you think that happens to make. Because a typical telescoping fork has to slide on bushings and seals, and it uses oil and management of the air pressure to control the damping, when significant side loads are placed on the bushings and seals of a telescoping fork, it definitely impedes its ability to slide. So now this wonderfully compliant, well-tuned fork that you've got on the front of your expensive bicycle with a significant side load, suddenly it doesn't want to suspend. It doesn't want to comply. It it will hit a series of bumps in kind of a, a staccato and, and pack up and use its travel and leave you with nothing for the, the big hit to come. So with bearings and pivots, what we're getting is zero friction in the kind of the, the horizontal plane on which those pivots need to, to move as they encounter bumps. There's really nothing to bind and pivots respond really well to those impacts. I should say sealed cartridge bearings on pivots respond really well to those kinds of loads. So we're pretty well optimized to handle the very thing that makes a telescoping fork bind. I want to ask you about sort of the trajectory of the bike industry. Crystal ball time. We like to ask the crystal ball question. Looking five years down the line or 10 years down the line, where do you think things are going? My honest answer is that things were too homogenous before COVID, and COVID has introduced a, a whole new shift in the number of people who are adopting bicycles who are looking to improve their, their personal performance, who are looking at cool or custom kit and variations on the theme of a mountain bike that don't fit the traditional mold. So I think structure fits really well for people who are looking for something that's cutting edge, that's higher performance, that's just quirky, that's a conversation starter. And with with those guys, we play well. I think because the overall body of people who are now becoming passionate about biking is growing, the smaller percentage of those who are going to be interested in the unique, who are going to be interested in the highest performance kit is also going to grow as a, a portion of the, the, the total. I think it's a great time to be involved in cycling. So my crystal ball says that in five years, structure will still be here, will still be serving that, that small percentage of the overall bike industry that's looking for the very best, who's looking for something that improves the ride, either in terms of ultimate performance or just the number of smiles per kilometer again. And we're happy to be here for them. We do intend to be here uh, to be here in five to ten years, and we intend to be at the tip top of the performance spectrum for enduro mountain bikes, as well as for a few other types of full suspension bikes 
And we've got our eyes set on, again, as I said, hardtails as well. So who knows just how many different parts of the bike industry we'll be able to hit with our linkage front end. We've, we've taken a big picture approach to how our front end as a modular system might apply to a number of different rear configurations, different uh, styles of suspension, as well as hardtails. And we feel like we've got a pretty good eye now on how structure can fit five to 10 years from now on a much wider product line. So then here's kind of the related question, the question of sort of acceptance and adoption. Every product designer, every company making anything has to think about this, right? The question of, do we come in and look familiar enough in a given category that we don't sort of freak people out versus freaking people out. How are you thinking through this, right? I imagine a friend of yours could have been like, hey man, don't go this out there. Like tone down the aesthetic. Let's just get in the game a little bit, play nice with everybody, kind of wear the same clothes as most of the people at the party, not come in wearing the spacesuit. So how do you think about this or are you like, yeah, we don't really care. It's a cool design. We like it. It'll sort itself out and find the right audience. That's a fantastic question. And the truth is we think about it a lot. We didn't get into this game to be different. We didn't set out to be the oddballs. And we're certainly not here to say, hey, industry, screw you. We're just going to be different and do our own thing. The truth is we love hanging out at, on race day with all the other bike brands. And we're the kind of company where if you need a piece of hardware and we've got it in the drawer, we're happy to share. And we'll take a competitor's bike and try to get it up and running so we can all go out and have a good time. So in that sense, we're very collaborative. We really want to be a part of things. But at the same time, we do have to do things our own way. And for us, performance is king. Form has to follow function. But at the same time, we're concerned with whether we're too far out there. I think for some people, we're just too much to process right now. So in normalizing the concept, we want structure bikes to be seen at race days, at festivals, at various trailheads all over the world until there's there's kind of some some normalcy, until people say, yeah, that's, that's what an, another type of bike can look like. At the same time, we have... A number of people who have been fans from the start, who have seen the potential, who understand why the linkage is there and does what it does. And some of them, a large number of them, feel that the bike is beautiful. So it's polarizing. There, We acknowledge the people who say it, it looks like dog shit. But at the same time, we've got others who say that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And with that kind of polarizing reaction, we're thrilled because we would rather sell bikes to people who absolutely love what we're doing than to people who think it's pretty okay. One thing I am a bit curious about that sort of ties in here to some extent is whether at any point along the line you considered trying to make a linkage fork that would have a normal steerer tube and go on a conventional bike frame, or was the idea from the onset pretty clearly that you were going to make this sort of frame and fork system that you ended up with. I actually wrote a blog about this on our website 
about the history of linkage forks of the past. And in most cases, they were, as you say, a typical steerer that could attach to a typical frame. But the problem for me as I started doing this design exercise was that I couldn't get the axle paths front and rear to track together the way I wanted them to when I was confined to just replacing the fork. I didn't have enough swing on each of the linkage arms on a linkage fork that's a standalone unit like the Trust or the Motion Ride forks to do kinematically what I wanted to do, to get the axle path and the separation of steering, suspension, and braking one from another, and to get the anti-dive properties that I wanted. I knew I didn't want 100% anti-dive, by the way, right off the bat, because I was looking for compliance, and I was looking for a certain parallelism between how the front and rear function. So to get that, we don't have tiny, short little arms on rear of a bike controlling the rear axle, so I didn't want tiny little arms confined to a small packaging space at the front either. I knew I needed the long arms to get the vertical compliance that we wanted on flat landings, but also to manage trail and fork steering angle at the front in a way that I just couldn't if I was replacing a typical telescoping fork with a, a fork like the Trust. Okay, well, Lonnie, before we let you go here, this program is called Bikes and Big Ideas. Before we let you go, I'm going to ask, are there any other big ideas floating around in your head currently that you ought to share with us? I think bikes are a big idea. I think getting out into nature and exercising your body and breathing fresh air are healthful things to do. And with covid inflicting its damage on the world. People are realizing that more than ever. So bikes are a big idea. And doing bikes well and making the experience of getting out in nature and enjoying a bicycle the best it can possibly be is what we're all about. So big picture, it's a fantastic endeavor. It's, an, it's a fantastic thing to be doing as a human being and we might as well do it to the best of our ability. So from a performance standpoint, structure wants to do that. And from the standpoint of getting everybody home safely, making every ride the best it can be, regardless of how gnarly and unpredictable the terrain might be, those are our goals. That's the big picture to date. From here forward, our big picture as a company is going to be about becoming a normal part of the bike industry, introducing new models, getting more people comfortable with linkage, showing them that our bikes are durable, that they're actually easy to maintain. If bike shop tech knows how to work on the rear of a bike, he can work on ours. So eventually you'll start to see our bikes in more places. You'll see them farther afield. You'll see them in places where people have a small toolkit and know that they can work on the bike. So we're going to remove the fear factor and still keep our eye focused on making cycling a healthful, enjoyable sport and, and also one that's accessible to people. We don't always want to be building bicycles that are unobtainium for most people. Sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. 
every day. Well, on that note, we should probably let you go so you can get back to it, Lonnie. But thank you very much for taking the time. It is always really fun to talk to people who are looking at the world a little bit differently and seeing what might be possible, what might be better. So I, I applaud your efforts in this regard and look forward to seeing what you continue to spin out. We'll keep working hard at it. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to both of you today. Well, thank you, Lonnie. We'll hope to do it again soon. Okay, looking forward to it. Well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to David and Lonnie for the conversation. And if you haven't already, head over to structure.bike to check out Lonnie's designs that we just talked about for this whole time. So I assume that you've already checked out their website or at least checked out images of this bike. If you haven't, I don't know whether to applaud you or chastise you. And the other big reminder here is also to be sure to go to blister.getspot.com and sign up to get yourself $20,000 of accident coverage because you, Yes, you need accident coverage. You just listened to an entire podcast about a weird bike design that will allow you to mob around even faster and harder in gnarly terrain, and you're all excited about that possibility because I know you, so go get some damn coverage. Check out blister.getspot.com. Just check it out, okay? Finally, I want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And you know, of course, as always, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again next week.